0: Stephen and Jenna were married in June 2019. Their goal is to start a guest house ministry to reach the thousands of Israelis who travel through Brazil each year. As young Jewish travelers are searching for the answers to life, Stephen and Jenna will be able to introduce them to the source of life, Jesus. While eating home-cooked meals and studying the Bible, this ministry provides a safe place where Israelis can delve into the truth that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel and the world. And with that, I want to welcome Stephen Arnold.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, As he said, my name is Stephen Arnold and my wife is back there with our daughter. Uh, If you see a baby crawling around, it's probably her. Um, We work for Chosen People Ministries, which is a ministry reaching out to Jewish people all over the world. And specifically what Jenna and I will be doing is starting a guest house ministry for Israelis in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And normally when I say that, people are a little bit confused and they kind of think, uh, don't you know that Israel, where Israelis live, is in the Middle East and you're going to South America? It's kind of a distance between those two places. And of course, I have seen a map, don't worry. Um, but I want to tell you a story to kind of get you to know why this is a, a, a good ministry and a, uh, something that uh, needs to be planted so that Israelis can hear the gospel. And specifically, I want to tell you about an Israeli I met in Argentina named Alon. Uh, Alon grew up in Israel, and like every good Israeli, uh, he uh, finished high school and went immediately into his army service. Um, every girl serves for two years and every guy serves for three years. And so he served for three years with his best friend in their army unit. And he and his best friend were looking forward today the when they would finish because uh, it is normal for Israelis to travel the world after their army service. And so he and his best friend were excited to go on this journey of a lifetime. They pulled out a map and they mapped out exactly where they wanted to go and dreamed of all the places that they would see and the people they would meet. And they were so excited to go on this adventure. But there was just one problem. While they were in their army service, Alone's best friend ended up dying in combat. So Alone finished his army service and he had no one to travel with. He had a decision. He could either scrap all those plans and just stay home, or he could still travel and do it in memory of his best friend. And well, he chose that second option and what he did was he took a T-shirt from his best friend during their army service that had his best friend's name on it. And everywhere that he went, there was a place that they had planned to go or if he met people that he knew his best friend would love to meet, he would take a picture with that shirt, with that place or those people. And so I met alone in Argentina. And he was staying at a guest house ministry that we had there for Israelis. And he absolutely loved us at the ministry and said, if my best traveling with me, he would love to meet you could I take a picture with his shirt with everyone that works here? And so we took a picture together and afterwards I was talking with him and I asked, why is it that you decided to travel? And he told me the story that I just told you, but I've learned with Israelis that there's a surface answer and then there's a deeper answer to that question. So when I probed a little deeper to see why he was traveling, he said, well, if I'm honest, I have a lot of questions. Where was God when my best friend died? Is there a God at all? And if there is a God, does he care anything about me? And I tell you this story because this is more than just a lone story. There are so many Israelis that are traveling in South America trying to make sense of this world, make sense of who is God, where do I fit in this whole picture? And we wanna start this ministry to provide them a place to stay, provide them meals to eat, but more importantly, we want to meet them where they are on this spiritual journey. Because when they're traveling, they are very much on a spiritual journey, and they are looking for answers in a lot of different situations and scenarios. Some of them turn to drugs. Some of them go meditate in Hindu ashrams. They're looking in all the wrong places. But what we want to do is point them back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who promised to send the Messiah who would redeem us from our sins. And God has been faithful to send that Messiah who is Jesus. So we want to start this ministry to tell them about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, that God has promised and God has followed through on that promise. But in order to do that, I need your help. So when you came in, I think most of you should have received one of these blue brochures. And if you open it up, You'll see a little bit of information about uh, Jenna and I, our story, along with our picture and our, uh, our cute daughter there. And if you open it up one more time to the very middle inside, you will see uh, some information about Chosen People Ministries, but you'll also see a white slip that you uh, can tear off, fill it out, and give to me afterwards. And if you do that, I promise to send you our monthly prayer letter. That way you know what's going on in the ministry, you know how you can be praying for us. Because like I said, we need you helping to send us, helping pray for us as we are on the field. We are not doing this alone. You know, 1 Corinthians talks about the body of Messiah and that we all affect one another and we're part of one body. And y'all are very much a part of this ministry or I want you to be a part of this ministry. So please uh, fill this out and give it to us afterwards so you can start receiving our prayer letters. Um, Also, there's a table out in the the foyer there that you, there's some uh, books for sale and some different information about the ministry, but also there is a prayer card that you can pick up so that you can put us on your refrigerator, uh, your office desk, uh, your mirror, somewhere that you'll look on a daily basis so that you can remember to pray for us because we need your prayer. Let me say it one more time. We need your prayer. So please remember to pray for us. So pick up one of those prayer cards. Also, we can't go to Brazil and stay on the field without the financial support to get us there and to keep us there. Um, So there is an opportunity also on this slip to support us monthly, Um, or if you're not able to support us monthly, you can do a one-time gift. Um, But I would really encourage you to please be a part of what we're doing, because we do not see this as we're going to do our own thing, but we see this as the church body in America behind us supporting us to do that, and we want you to be a part of what we're doing. So please fill that out. So what we're here to talk about this morning is the Passover, which is why uh, there's this table set up before me, and we'll talk about the meal and how everything uh, symbolizes part of the Passover story. But before we talk about the symbolism, I want us to first remember the story of the Exodus. And I actually want to go back a little further than the Exodus, back to Abraham. Because you may remember in Genesis chapter 12 that God promised to Abraham to bless Abraham, To bless his descendants, the Jewish people, and to bless the entire world through Abraham and his descendants. And part of this blessing was that the land of Israel would be given to the Jewish people. So then we come to Genesis chapter 15, and Abraham is having a conversation with God. And Abraham asked God, How is it that I am to know for certain that my descendants will inherit this land? And so in Genesis 15, verses 13 through 14, this was God's reply. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." So in this, these two verses are five things that God tells Abraham will happen before they return to the land and inherit the land of Israel. And as we go through the story, you'll see all five of those things come to pass. So this promise was given to Abraham, and then it was passed down to Isaac, his son, and then to Jacob, and then from Jacob to his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And you may remember that one of the 12 sons was Joseph. And I'm condensing the story quite a bit, so I'll let you read Genesis to fill in all the gaps that I'm not quite touching on. Uh, But Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt uh, by his brothers. What wonderful brothers he had, right? Well, he was sent down into Egypt, and through this awful thing, God used it for good. Because while in the land of Egypt... uh, Joseph was elevated to such a degree that he was able to store up food in the land of Egypt so that when there was seven years of famine, the whole land of Egypt and much of the Middle East could come to Egypt for food. And it was only through those provisions that people survived in this area. Well, lo and behold, Joseph's own family came down to receive food. And through finding their brother there in Egypt, they ended up moving to the land of Egypt. The entirety of his family, the entirety of the Jewish people, moved to the land of Goshen, which was in Egypt. This was the first thing that God told Abraham would happen, that they would be sojourners in a land that was not theirs. Well, we fast forward quite a bit, and there arises a Pharaoh who does not remember who Joseph was. So this Pharaoh looks out over his kingdom, and he sees the Jewish people, and he thinks, you know, these people are different than my people. And they're separate from our people, and actually they could be a threat to my kingdom. If another kingdom comes against us, they could side with our enemies, and in this way, we would be defeated from the inside out. So he he hatched a plan. He said, if I enslave the Jewish people, not only can I control them, but I can make them build whatever I want them to build. So Pharaoh enslaved the Jewish people, and he actually had us build two treasured cities in the land of Egypt, Petom and Ramses. This was the second thing that God told Abraham would happen, that they would be slaves in the land that they were sojourning in. So the Jewish people began to cry out to God for a deliverer. And so God sent Moses as that deliverer. And he said those famous words that I'm sure we all know, let my people go. But I actually want you to lengthen that a little bit because actually what God tells Moses to say is he tells Moses to go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And I want you to remember that longer phrase because their freedom wasn't just given for the sake of them to be free, but their freedom was given with a purpose, and I think that's true of freedom in general. For those of us that experience general or experience our freedom, that freedom comes with a purpose. That freedom is given so that we may worship God. Freedom comes with the purpose of worshiping God. So Moses goes before Pharaoh, and he says, "'Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness.'" To which Pharaoh basically scoffs and says, there's no way. I don't want you to to leave my kingdom. I'm controlling you where you are. So God begins to pour out judgment upon the land of Egypt. And he sends ten plagues upon the land of Egypt. This was the third thing that God told Abraham would happen. That he would judge that nation that enslaved the Jewish people. And you may remember that the 10 plagues culminated in a 10th and final plague, which was the death of every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. This was the worst plague of them all. And it would affect every single home in the land of Egypt unless they took the blood of a lamb and put that blood on the doorpost and the lintel of their home. And it's only then that when God came through the land, he saw the blood on those doorposts, he would pass over those homes. The wrath of God would pass over those homes that had the blood of the lamb. Well, the next morning, after uh, every firstborn male in the land of Egypt had died, except for those that were covered in the blood of the lamb, Exodus says that there was a wail in the land of Egypt that had never been heard before since and will never be heard again. Because this wail was one of intense pain, because mothers were waking up and finding their firstborn sons dead in their beds. I can't think of much more worse thing than that. Well, this final tenth plague broke Pharaoh. So Pharaoh told Moses, get out of my land. I want nothing to do with the Jewish people anymore. Take your herds, take your families, take everything you own, get out. I want nothing to do with you. So the Jewish people began to get their belongings together, and and part of what they did was they asked their neighbors for provisions as they were leaving the land of Egypt. And so it says that their neighbors began to give them gold and silver and clothing and anything that they asked for. This was the fourth thing that God told Abraham That they would leave with great possessions. And then the fifth thing that God told Abraham was that they would be in this land for 400 years. And lo and behold, Exodus records that they had been in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And now I tell this story of the Passover in this way because I want us to see the faithfulness of God. God told Abraham that his descendants wouldn't inherit the land of Israel until after these things had come to pass. And all of the things that God told Abraham would happen happened just as he said. And I want us to see the faithfulness of God because God is faithful to his promises and he is faithful to you and the promises he has made to you as well. And I think there's a good reason why God told the Jewish people to celebrate this feast once every single year. It's because he knows that we as humans are forgetful. How many times do we lose our keys, just as an example? We are very forgetful people. But the faithfulness of God is something that we do not need to forget. So God told the Jewish people, Do not forget that I have redeemed you out of slavery. Do not forget my mighty acts. And I think it's the same for us. Do not forget the mighty acts of God that you have seen. Do not forget God's redeeming you out of slavery to sin. Do not forget. So as we talk about this feast today, we will see a lot of symbolism pointing to the faithfulness of God and how he redeemed Israel out of slavery to, uh, in Egypt. And the first thing that we must do before partaking of the meal is we must prepare for the Passover. And we see Jesus doing that with his disciples when he and the disciples had what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper, because that meal was a Passover meal. So as we go through it today, I want to see how Jesus interacted with these elements with his disciples, as well as the symbolism that it means for the Jewish people in talking about the Passover. So in Luke 22, verses 7 through 8, Jesus told his disciples to prepare. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. Now as we read that, we might be tempted to think that Jesus is telling them to go prepare uh, some, get some tables and chairs and, you know, get a nice tablecloth and the plates and all of those things. Which, you know, I'm sure they did get things together to eat a meal. But what he's referring to there is actually what Exodus uh, requires before partaking of this meal. Because before partaking of this meal, Exodus says that you are go your, through your entire home and clean out all of the leaven, all of the yeast. And it's only then that you can then partake of this meal. And now Paul, in 1 Corinthians, uses this very thing as a picture for us before partaking of the elements of what we know as communion. He says to go through, take inventory of your entire life, of your own heart, and cleanse out the leaven from your heart. Any unconfessed sin you have in your heart, deal with it before partaking of the elements that represent Jesus' body and his blood because we do not want to partake of this meal in an unworthy manner. We don't want any unforgiven sin in our heart when partaking of these elements. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28 says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But So before we get to the symbolism, I first want to give everyone a moment of silence to pray, just you and God, dealing with any sin that you may have in your heart because I do not want us to partake of these elements this morning in an unworthy manner. So if everyone will pray, and then I will offer a prayer in a moment. Avinu Malkenu, our Father and our King. God, I thank you that we can approach your throne and confess our sins because you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God, that it's through the blood of our Messiah slain for us that we can have our sins forgiven, completely wiped away, so that we can have that access to the Father. We can know you truly. In this name of our Messiah, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. So, now that we have prepared for the Passover, not just the building, but our own hearts, we can now begin into the Passover meal. And the first thing that we do uh, for every single uh, Jewish feast is the lighting of the candles. So, I'll invite my wife to come forward to light the candles for us. Um, In Jewish tradition, there are There's different things that different parts of the family do, so I'm kind of doing the role of the father for the presentation. Um, And my wife will uh, do the role of the woman of the home. And um, it's the role of the mom to bring light into the home in Judaism. Urikatad and I Elohenu Melakalam Ashirkishanu Eliadei Manu Bayeshua Ha O Mashiach Orha Lam Abutchmo Anu Malachim Ner Sell Pesak. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us through Jesus the Messiah, the light of the world, and in his name we kindle the Passover lights. I feel very loved when she does that. <laughs> so now we can begin to talk about um, some of the things that we have on our Passover table. Um, and the first thing I want to point out is this plate sitting, sitting right here. Uh, typically, this would be the centerpiece on the table with these foods on the plate, but I have it so you can actually see it. Um, some say it looks like a large deviled egg plate, but uh, used for slightly different purpose. Uh, but each of these things would be sitting in those different uh, spots on the in the middle of the table. Another thing that we have during the Passover meal is the Haggadah, which is, uh, is basically telling the story of the Exodus as you go through it. It also has different songs that are read or prayers that are said um, during the night so that everyone can say them together. And Haggadah means telling. So it is telling the story of the Exodus, and you are eating the different foods as you go along. This is a Bible study with food, which in my opinion is the best way to do it, right? So we'll come to the very first thing, which is the cup. And we'll drink from the cup four different times during the presentation, and it is to represent four I-will statements that God makes in the book of Exodus. So in Exodus 6, verses 5 through 7, it says this, "'Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel,' "...whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant." Remember, that covenant with Abraham. God remembers his covenants. "...say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will take you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So this first cup represents that first I will statement where God says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So I will say a blessing, but I need your help. So are you uh, prepared to learn a little Hebrew this morning? Yeah? Okay. It's not a joke. <laughs> Repeat after me. Amen. amen. Perfect. Flawless Hebrew. <laughs> so uh, if I'll say the blessing, and then y'all will say the amen afterwards. Haolam, Borei Prihagafen. Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, Creator of the fruit of the vine. Next, we come to our first food, which is uh, called the kalpas, which is the. Uh, green herb, which here is parsley, and the green herb represents life, and specifically in the Passover meal, it represents our lives when we were enslaved in Egypt, so we dip the parsley into salt water, which represents tears, because when we were enslaved in Egypt, our lives were drenched in tears, but you know, there's a correlation for you as well, because everyone in this room has been enslaved, we were all once, before Jesus, enslaved to sin, and our lives before Jesus were drenched in tears. So I will say the blessing, and then I will eat. Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, Creator of the fruit of the earth. Next, we come to my favorite part of the symbolism of the meal, which is uh, this piece here that's called the Echad, which means one or unity. And the reason why it's a unity is because it is, of course, one piece. But inside, there are three different pockets. And inside each pocket is a piece of matzah, unleavened bread. And if you were to ask the rabbis why we have uh, this one piece with three pieces of matzah inside, they'll usually give one of two different explanations. One is actually written here on these tabs where it says priest, Levite, and the people of Israel. So in that understanding, it represents the entirety of the Jewish people, from the, the priest all the way down to the common Israelite. Another explanation is that it would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish people, which so far it sounds really nice. We're all following, I think. But what we do with this piece, that explanation kind of starts to break down a bit. Because what we'll do is we'll take out the middle piece of matzah, Then that piece is now broken in half. And then one half of that matzah is wrapped and it's hidden away. And this now in uh, the Seder meal is called the afikoman, which is written here in Hebrew lettering. But is actually a Greek word that has come into the Seder meal. And it's a Greek word that means that which comes later. So this is hidden away, and we come back to it later on in the presentation. And normally it's hidden much better than this. Um, it's usually kind of a game for the children to find it while you're eating the full meal. Um, but for our purposes, everyone will know where it is. Um, But if we go back to that symbolism that the rabbis explain, we have to ask ourselves, well, why would you break the piece that represents the Levite? Or why would you break the piece that represents Isaac? And to be honest, I've never heard a really great, solid explanation. Um, The best explanation I've ever heard is, well, we're Jewish. We have many traditions. This is just one of them. Uh, If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, there's that song, tradition, tradition. It's very true. We have a lot of traditions, um, a lot of very meaningful traditions, but I think this one has kind of lost uh, a lot of the meaning for a lot of Jewish people. Um, But since we're coming back to it later, I have a different explanation for it. But in the meantime, give it some thought as to what you think this might represent. And remember that it's one piece with three inside. Don't say it out loud, but it's three in one. Don't say it though. I can see people nodding, you're following, but we'll come back to it later on. Next, we'll come to the second cup. And the second cup represents uh, that second I will statement, where God said, I will rescue you from their bondage. And now, a full cup represents full joy. And as we remember the Exodus story, we remember the plagues that God poured out upon the Egyptians. And so, in remembering that, we're remembering the suffering of the Egyptians. But we don't want to take joy in the suffering of others. So, what we do is we take our pinky and we dip a drop out for every single one of the ten plagues, showing that we are not taking joy in the suffering of others. Even though God was just in judging the land of Egypt, it is not our place to be glad that others suffered. So, for each of the ten plagues, I will take out a drop. So the first plague, blood, frogs, vermin, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the tenth and final, the death of every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. So now that we have decreased our joy, showing we're not taking joy in the suffering of the Egyptians, we can partake of the second cup. Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, Creator of the fruit of the vine. Now, as we talk about the symbolism on this table, uh, different parts of the symbolism have come into the meal at different times in history. Uh, Almost everything you see on the table was here when Jesus had this meal with his disciples, uh, except for one or two things, and I'll point those out as we go. But there are three things that we do that go all the way back to the very first Passover, when the Jewish people were sitting in slavery, waiting to be freed. They were sitting there with their their belts fastened, their shoes on their feet, their staff in their hand, waiting for the deliverance of God. And the first thing that we must have is the lamb. Now, you might notice that I didn't uh, pull up a full roasted lamb. Uh, And actually, Exodus says that that is what you were to have as part of the meal. You were to go to the temple... You were to sacrifice a lamb and bring part of it home to have as part of this meal. And the reason why you do this is to remember those lambs that were sacrificed in Egypt. It's an integral part of the story. Without the lamb, every firstborn son in the land of Egypt would die. But it's only because of the blood of the lamb that the wrath of God passed over those homes that were covered in the blood. But there is no temple so you, nobody can go sacrifice and bring part of it home to have it as part of this meal. So the rabbis kind of are in a rock and a hard place. We must have the lamb, but there's no way to have the lamb, so what do we do? Well, the, the compromise is they have the shank bone of a lamb on the Seder plate to remind us of those lambs that were slain in the land of Egypt. But when you think about it, it's a sad symbol. It's a symbol that something's missing. Something's just not right. Because the Torah is very clear that for the forgiveness of sins, there has to be blood sacrificed. But, you know, when I see this bone, I'm not thinking, man, I wish that I could have a blood sacrifice. I wish the temple was standing. No, when I see this bone, I hear the words of John the Baptist when he looked at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because we no longer need to go and sacrifice lambs and bulls and goats. Because Hebrews is clear that he sacrificed himself once and for all. We need no other sacrifice. Amen? The second thing that dates all the way back to the very first Passover is the matzah. It says that we left Egypt in such haste that we didn't have time for our dough to rise. So once we were able to bake our dough, it turned out a little flat. Uh, It doesn't exactly look like bread you buy in the store to make a sandwich, um, because that that bread has leaven. It it causes the dough to rise. So we have unleavened bread, and we don't eat uh, yeast at all during the Feast of Unleavened Bread or or, uh, Passover. And it's to remember how quickly we left the land of Egypt. So now I'll take a piece of the unleavened bread, And I will dip it into the third thing that dates back to the very first Passover. And that is the bitter herb, which here is horseradish, which is quite potent, I can already tell, which is good because the bitter herb is meant to symbolize the bitterness of slavery. You know, the the Passover meal is meant to be a taste and feel and experience the story of Passover. Slavery is bitter. Therefore, we eat a bitter herb to remember the awfulness of slavery. So I'll take a piece, a little bit of the, the horseradish. And the rabbis say that you are to take enough of the horseradish that brings a tear to your eye, remembering the bitterness of slavery. But you know, we see Jesus doing this with his disciples as well. You might remember in the Gospel of John that Jesus told his disciples that one of them would betray him. So they all began to talk amongst themselves and say, who would betray Jesus? Who would do such a thing? He's our rabbi. Why would we do such a thing? And so one of them turned to Jesus and said, who is it that will betray you? And so it says that Jesus dipped, and he handed what he dipped to Judas Iscariot. And I believe what he dipped into was the bitter herb. Now think about the symbolism there, the bitterness of slavery. So, too, this could symbolize the bitterness of betrayal. But, you know, it's, a, it's an important part of the story. Because Jesus was betrayed, it led to the cross, which led to the tomb, which ultimately ended in the resurrection. And without the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah, we are hopeless. Hopeless. So, in partaking of the bitter herb, we remember that betrayal, but we remember the hope we have in his death, burial, and resurrection. So, I will say the blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to eat the bitter herb. I always go pretty quickly to the next one because it tastes a lot better. Uh, This is an apple mixture with nuts and honey and cinnamon. Um, Great to cleanse your palate from the bitterness of slavery. And this is meant to look like the mortar that the Jewish people used to build things in the land of Egypt. And now you might be thinking, you know, the bitterness, bitter herb makes sense that you know the slavery is bitter, but now we're eating something sweet. That also reminds us of slavery. Why in the world would you do such a thing? There's nothing sweet about slavery. And of course, I would agree with you. There is absolutely nothing sweet about slavery. But what is so sweet is when the Jewish people were sitting in slavery and they knew their redemption was drawing near. They knew God would redeem them from their slavery. And it's that redemption drawing near that it was so incredibly sweet. And the way I like to think about it for us is that when we are saved, our salvation is secure, our sins are forgiven, but we still live in a world where sin runs rampant. We still, still live in a world where there's disease. That's how we had a pandemic. We still live in a world that is wrecked by sin. But one day, we will stand before our Messiah. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. Those aches and pains that we feel in our bodies will no longer exist. There will never again be a pandemic, and our sin nature will be wiped away. And that, to me, is the sweetest of redemption drawing near. Amen? So for this one, there is no blessing, so I will go ahead and eat and remember that sweetness of redemption. The last thing that we have on our Seder plate is the egg, and the egg would not have been on the, the table when Jesus had this with his disciples, because the egg is to remember the destruction of the temple, which happened after the time of Jesus. Uh, the idea there is that it's a symbol for the sacrifices as well as the destruction. So eggs, or chickens lay eggs uh, every single day, and so too there were sacrifices given daily in the temple. Also, the egg is sometimes roasted so that it has char marks on it, uh, also showing that the temple was burned to the ground. But similar to the bone, it is a reminder to Jewish people that something is missing, that there's no sacrifice able to be made currently. But again, for us, that's not a threat because our hope is secure in Jesus, our sacrifice. Now, normally, if you were having this meal with your family, we would now uh, kind of break to have a full meal with roasted chicken and roasted vegetables, um, flourless desserts. Uh, Jewish people really like to eat, a lot like Southerners. When we we get together to eat, there's a lot to be had. Um, It kind of looks like, you know, Thanksgiving meal at your family, uh, except there's no bread or anything like that. So we really enjoy the eating part, but we'll skip past that, and I'll let y'all eat lunch afterward. Um, And what we come to after the meal is the finding of the afikomen. Normally, while everyone is eating their dinner, the the children are running around the house trying to find the afikomen, because whoever finds the afikomen will receive a reward. And that reward could be anything from a quarter or a piece of candy uh, up to maybe a $20 bill if the father is really generous. Uh, It all depends. But since we all know where it is, there's no uh, looking for it or a reward that will be given this morning, so I will pull it out. And now it's this piece of matzah that I specifically want us to see through Jewish eyes. Specifically, I want you to see it through the eyes of an Israeli I met in Argentina His name was Alon, which is a different Alon than the first story I told. Uh, It's a common name in Israel. But I want you to see this through Alon's eyes. You see, Alon came came to our ministry in Argentina, and he knew that we were believers and that we would be going to church on Sunday. So he asked if he could come with us to church. And of course, we were overjoyed. Please, we would love for you to come with us to church. And you have to understand, this is a big ask for a Jewish person. Because most Jewish people think of Christianity as the main uh, spreader of anti-Semitism in the world, where a lot of the hate of the Jewish people comes from. And of course, as I usually say that, normally people are thinking, how could that be? And it has a lot to do with Jewish-Christian relations throughout history, which could be its own talk of its own. Uh, We can talk about it afterwards if you would really like to know. But you need to know that this was a very big ask for him to come with us. And so he came with us to church, and everything he experienced was completely new, including communion. So afterwards, when we were coming back to the guest house, he started asking questions. And he said, what was that they were doing with the bread and the cup? He said, it's very foreign to me. I've never seen anything like that before. And I said, well, it's actually not as foreign to you as you might think, because that symbolism comes from Passover, and of course, he started racking his mind, trying to think, where is that symbolism in the Passover meal? He said, I, I celebrate that that feast every single year with my family, and I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, Well, does your family have the Echad? And he said, Of course. You can't have Passover without the Echad. And I asked, What does this represent? And he said, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So then I said, Well, why do you break the peace representing Isaac? And he said, Honestly, I can't tell you. I don't actually know. It's never fully made sense. It's just what we do. It's a tradition of ours. And I said, well, do you mind if I share with you what I think this represents? And he said, please do. I would love to make sense of this tradition. But before I tell you what I told him, what do you think this represents? Exactly, the Trinity. So I began to explain to him that the three pieces of matzah represent on top, God the Father, the middle, God the Son, Jesus, but he stopped me right there, and he said, oh, that actually makes more sense, because then the last piece would represent the Holy Spirit, and when you take out the middle and you break it, it represents Jesus' death, and I said, you've got it. Before I was even halfway through the explanation, he saw exactly the symbolism that is there. That this piece represents the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Then we take out that piece representing Jesus. It is broken, representing his death. It is wrapped and buried, representing the burial in the tomb. But it does not stay there. It comes back into the meal, representing the resurrection. And remember, for those who find it, there is a reward. And for those who find Jesus, is great reward. And the symbolism actually goes a bit further. Remember that this matzah has no leaven whatsoever. It is unleavened bread. And leaven, or yeast, represents sin. For Jesus to be our sacrifice, he had to be sinless. We are the sinful ones in need of a sacrifice. If he had done one thing wrong, he would no longer qualify as our sacrifice. But it's because God the Son stepped down to earth, sinless sacrifice, giving himself in the death, burial, and resurrection, that we can have forgiveness of sin. So now would you be surprised that when Jesus took this peace with his disciples, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we'll be partaking of this together in a moment. And I want you to remember this symbolism as we partake of the bread. But after partaking of the bread, it says that Jesus then took the cup. And after partaking of the Afikoman and the Seder meal, you come to the third cup. This third cup represents that third I will statement, where God said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Think about the symbolism and the the picture that is drawn there. For the Jewish people in Egypt, this is the picture of God reaching down to his people, bringing them out of slavery to be a people to himself. But you know, this picture of an outstretched arm reminds me of a, a prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah 53 is a prophecy talking about the future Messiah who will suffer on behalf of us so that our sins can be forgiven. But the very first verse says, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Messiah himself is the arm of God, reaching down to save those who cannot save themselves so that they can be made a people to God. So he took this cup, representing that outstretched arm, redeeming man, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And I don't want us to miss why he says this exact phrase the new covenant in my blood. Because I think the disciples, as they heard this, being students of the Old Testament, would have remembered that one day a new covenant was prophesied to come. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, It says, it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. So as Jesus held this cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, he's referring to this new covenant in Jeremiah. But you know, for, a, for forgiveness of sin and for a covenant to be made, there must be blood that is shed. But Jeremiah didn't fully explain by what sacrifice this forgiveness of sins would be given. So when Jesus held this cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, He explained how this forgiveness of sins was to come about. What it meant that this outstretched arm of God reaching down to save would be saving man. It was through his own shed blood. So as we partake of these elements this morning, I want us to remember these very things. His death, burial, and resurrection symbolized in the matzah. His blood shed so that we can believe in this new covenant. This new covenant in which sin is completely and utterly wiped away. So I'll uh, invite the ushers to come forward. And we'll have, uh, starting in the front, moving backward, we'll have people come forward to receive the elements. And uh, go ahead and grab a piece of the bread and a piece, uh, and a cup. And return to your seat, and we'll, we will partake of these elements together in a moment. So as Jesus took these elements with his disciples, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he said a blessing, so I will say a blessing as well. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth and gave us Jesus, our Messiah, the bread of life. Amen. Then he took the third cup, and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, who gave us Jesus, our Messiah, the true vine. Amen. Amen. After partaking of these elements with his disciples, the Gospel of Matthew says that they sang a few hymns together before going out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's exactly what Jewish people do today after that third cup. They sing what is often called to as the Hallel, which is a time of praising God for his marvelous acts. And that the Hallel is usually comprised of uh, Psalms 113 through 118. So I want to read Psalm 117, which really encapsulates a lot of that section, and is praising God for his redemption and his faithfulness. It says, Praise the Lord all nations. Extol him all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. After singing a few songs, we come to the fourth cup. The fourth cup represents that fourth I will statement, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now think about that statement in relation to everything that we've seen and all of the symbolism. For the Jewish people, God is pulling them out of slavery in Egypt to be a people to himself. And for those of us who believe in the Messiah and our sins are wiped away, once we believe in his death, burial, and resurrection— what more is there to say than He is our God and we are His people? There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God when our sins are forgiven in this way. And so, in that way, this cup is a cup of praise. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, Creator of the fruit of the vine. Now, there's one last thing that I want to make mention of here on the stage, and that is the special seat that is set here for a distinguished guest that every Jewish person is hoping will come to celebrate Passover with them this year. And so there's a specific uh, special cup that is put there for this guest. Um, it's a better cup than everyone else sitting at the table, because this, uh, this guest is a prophet from the Old Testament. Specifically, they're hoping that Elijah the prophet will join them for this feast. That might sound a little strange, but there's a scriptural reason why they do it. Because you see, in Malachi, it says that Elijah will come to tell who the Messiah is. And since Jewish people don't believe the Messiah has come yet, they're also still waiting for the one who will tell them who the Messiah is. So they're hoping maybe this year Elijah will come and they'll tell us who the Messiah is. They look at the world around them and they think, isn't it time that he should come? Our world needs a Messiah. Maybe this will be the year. But every single year, they send one of the children to the door and they open the door and they're hoping, you know, maybe there's a chariot of fire coming down to to bring Elijah back. But every year they open the door, there's no one there. And of course, we might think that, we might see this and think, well, of course he's not there. Messiah has already come. Because in the New Testament, it says that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. That is why when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. He pointed to Jesus as our Messiah. He fulfilled this role. So, another way that we can put it, is, well, what are the Jewish people waiting for? Well, they're waiting for you to tell them that he has already come. Because the Jewish people need to know this. In the world today, there are about 17 million Jewish people. And of that number, less than 1% believe in Jesus as their Messiah. In Israel, there are between 6 and 7 million Jewish people. And of that number, only 0.3% believe in Jesus as their Messiah. I am Jewish myself, and I believe Jesus is the Messiah, and so I am part of this incredibly small number of Jewish people who believe. And as I think about those numbers, it's really easy to get dis- be discouraged. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus came and paid the penalty for our sins. Wouldn't you think that by 2,000 years the Jewish people would see and believe? I want my people to see and believe. And when I look at the scripture, I receive a lot of hope. Because in Romans, it says that one day all Israel will believe in Jesus as their Messiah. It says in Romans 11, starting in verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As is written the deliverer will come from Zion he will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when i take away their sins. You see when when Paul wrote this i think he wrote this because he was reading his old testament scriptures. He knew there's hope for his own people that one day all Israel would be saved. If you remember that passage I read earlier, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, it starts off by saying, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is a covenant made specifically with the Jewish people. And of course, anyone who believes in this new covenant is grafted into these promises. That's why everyone in this room who's not Jewish can can believe in these promises and have their sins forgiven through the blood of the Lamb. But this promise was specifically made to the Jewish people first. And it goes on to say that one day they will no longer need to teach their neighbor and each their brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It's talking about a revival amongst the Jewish people. Like Zechariah says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. That's a mourning of repentance. I think it will also be a mourning of, for thousands of years, Jewish people have rejected the only hope that we have. But in that day, the entirety of the Jewish people will believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And because God is faithful to his promises, as we've seen in the Passover meal, God is faithful to his promises, what he says he will do. I know that one day this revival will take place in the hearts of the Jewish people. And I want to be a part of what God is doing amongst my people. One day it will no longer be such a small percentage that I'm a part of, but the majority of my people will believe And I hope that you want to be a part of what God is doing amongst the Jewish people. We know it will happen, so do you want to be a part of what God is doing? And you can be a part of reaching the Jewish people in three specific ways. First of all, pray for the salvation of Israel. It says in the Psalms to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I like to say, what better way to pray for the peace of Jerusalem than than that Jerusalem would believe in the Prince of Peace? Jesus, our Messiah. Pray that the veil would be taken away from their eyes so that they can see Jesus for who he is, the promised Messiah who was slain for their sins. I have hope in seeing this in the scripture where scales fall from the eyes of Paul. He's not the first or the only one that, that God has done this to, taking the veil away from Jewish people so they can see him as their Messiah. Second, Share your faith with Jewish people that you may know. And I can't promise that that will be an easy conversation. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, a lot of Jewish people think of Christianity as the the ones who spread anti-Semitism in the world. So there is a lot of hurt in the Jewish community from people who claim to be Christians. So I would encourage you to be bold in explaining your faith and that you have hope in the Jewish Messiah, but also have a listening ear listen to the hurts that the Jewish people have experienced in their lifetime. Because there is a lot of hurt in the Jewish community. But you know, you who are not Jewish, sharing about the Jewish Messiah to Jewish people is a very biblical concept. Because Romans talks about you making my people jealous. Because what was promised to the Jewish people, you are benefiting from. So when you tell a Jewish person that you believe in the Jewish Messiah and you read the Jewish scriptures... A lot of times that confuses them, and they're like, How can you have what was promised to me? And in a very biblical way, you make my people jealous for what was promised to them. Please make my people jealous. Tell them the hope that you have. And then, third, support Jewish ministry. You might not be able to go with us to Brazil, but you can be a part of sending us to go. And I hope that you want to be a part of what we were doing in South America reaching these Israelis who are traveling, uh, looking for the truth. They are really searching, and we want to be sent to tell them what they are searching for. Be a part of sending us to go. So I would encourage you to fill out the slip, sign up to receive our prayer letters. If you're able to give, please give. But be a part of what we are doing in South America. Now, as I finish this morning... I want us to put this into practice, and I want us to uh, finish off this presentation by praying for the salvation of Israel. Will you please pray with me? Avinu Malkeinu, our father and our king, God, I thank you that you are faithful. God, I thank you that what you say you will do. Your track record shows this. We see this through the entirety of the, the story of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and we see it going forward in the New Testament as well. So we know that when you have promised and we have not seen a fulfillment to certain promises yet, you will fulfill those in the future. And God, I thank you for this promise you've made that one day Israel will turn to you in faith. They will turn to you in believing in Jesus as their Messiah. God, I pray that you would take the veil from their eyes. God, they would see Jesus as their Messiah and they would experience the hope that we have in this room. God, I I think of Israelis that we've shared the gospel with in Brazil Specifically, I think of Israelis like Eliad, who was very, very curious about what we believe. Had a lot of questions about what the New Testament had to do with the Old Testament. Even though he grew up Orthodox, where he would have never heard anything about the New Testament. God, the soil of his heart seemed so ready to receive the gospel. But Lord, to my knowledge, he has not come to faith yet. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict him of his need for Jesus as his Messiah, convict him of his need for the forgiveness of his sins, and God, he would not forget the message that he heard. God, it is only through your Holy Spirit that we are changed from the inside out. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in his life this Passover as he celebrates this with his family. When he sees the bone, I pray that he remembers the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. God, may I hear back that he has accepted Jesus as the Messiah. God, I long for him to know the hope that we have. God, I also think about the people in this room. God, I pray that you use them to reach Jewish people with the gospel. God, give them opportunities to share your faith with Jewish people, whether they have someone in mind that they, they need to share the gospel with, or they don't know any single Jewish person. They, God, you would bring someone into their lives to do so. God, use everyone in this room for your glory in this way. And Lord, I thank you for this redemption that we see in the Passover meal. And God, I thank you that our salvation is secure. God, that when our sins are forgiven, nothing separates us from you. And Lord, it's in the Messiah Jesus that I pray. Amen.
0: Well, I don't think I'll ever look at the Passover the same again or communion time again. I love that. I love to be taken back to where it all started with Abraham and see how it all comes up to today. Brother Matt, I'm going to ask you if the team if you come on forward. Can you guys come forward? And um, I just want to say I can't, we can't leave this service today without saying to you, if you've never received this Messiah as your Savior, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, don't leave here today until you've done that. And maybe you don't even know what that's all about. I think it gets lost a lot of times in our culture. But if the, the team is going to sing, I'm going to ask the ushers if they'll go ahead and come forward. If you want to prepare your offering while we sing, we're just going to sing a song of remembrance. The, the words that kept coming up, up over and over and over in this presentation was remember, remember, remember. And we remember the works of God. We remember the things he done, He's done in the Old Testament. Brother Danny. I, don't, I think it's not coincidence that you opened with this. And then, So this morning, we're going to remember the works of God's hands. And he's faithful. He's been faithful for, to His people. And as Brother Stephen said, now we're grafted in. We are His people. And He's going to be faithful to us. And He will be faithful to you. And so as you prepare your offering, as the ushers come forward, if everyone will stand, please. And let's sing. I've asked Brother Matt and him to close this service Would we will remember. We will remember the works of his hands. And we will stop, as Brother Dan said, and give him praise for great is his faithfulness. And if you're here this morning, please don't leave this place. You see me, see Brother Dan, see Sister Teresa. If you don't know, if you say, but I need to, I don't know this Messiah, and I need to. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this presentation. God, we thank you, Lord, that you're faithful. And, Lord, we can put our trust in you because your promises, you're true to your promises. And I couldn't help but think, Lord, as we're thinking about the future and everything that's going on, that when you told your disciples that you were going away and Stephen said there was, I will, and you said, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go away, I will come again to receive you to myself. And that's going to happen. But, Lord, in the meantime, may we be, as Brother Stephen said, out sharing our faith with the Jewish people, with our neighbors next door, with those who don't know you, who don't know the hope that you offer, who've never repented of their sins that time of refreshing might would come in their life. And so, Lord, we thank you, and we thank you for this season, Lord, in Jesus' name. So as the ushers come forward, just give your gift, and and let's, let's worship and remember the works of the hand.